I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the last half of chapter 10 today. Really coming to a transition in our study of the Gospel. The end of chapter 10, it really starts the, the, the beginning of the end of Jesus' public ministry. His uh, conflicts with the religious authorities. And you'll notice that as we come to chapter 12, we begin really the last couple of weeks of Jesus' life, the events that took place after his death. Today we're looking at the last half of chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, and what is really the last significant, intense conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. John tells us in verse 22 that at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray together. Father, as we pray so often, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see from this portion of your word. Teach us, train us, conform us more and more to what your word says. And above all things today, Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus, that by seeing Jesus, we would grow in our love for him. And by growing in our love for him, we would grow in our obedience to him as we would listen to his voice and follow him. This we pray in his name. Amen. Well, as some of you are aware... Stephanie and my hometown, Richmond, Indiana, was in the national news this past week. Not for really something that you want to be in the national news for, but early, early in the week, 
a building in Richmond full of recycled plastic things caught on fire. And it was a massive warehouse, massive fire that literally burned all week until Friday when it finally was extinguished. It sent toxic fumes and debris all over the city of Richmond. Thousands of people had to be evacuated. Others were put into shelter-in-place situations. They were doing testing of the air and the soil, uh, probably still are, 24 hours a day. Now, some of you know that my mother still lives in Richmond, and uh, she uh, thankfully is on the opposite side of town from where the fire was located, but I was touching base with her throughout the week, and uh, she's fine, she's not in any danger, but she told me that uh, early in the week when the fire first broke out, when it was at the most intense stage of it and the flames were just unbelievable, the smoke that was coming out of the building was also unbelievable how thick it was and, and black and dark and it literally descended upon the city such that even all the way on the other side of town, my mother would look outside and it was the middle of the day and yet it looked like nighttime. Just an incredible, incredible fire and thick, dark, black clouds of smoke. A dark, thick cloud had started to descend in and around Jerusalem during the days that we're reading about in John's Gospel. In particular, starting back in chapter 5, we read that the Jewish authorities had decided that they were going to kill Jesus for things that he was saying. And we, we see this intensity of conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities continuing to progress from chapter 5 all the way up until where we are here in chapter 10. We see this, this cloud, this smoke of darkness that is descending upon Jerusalem. Jesus' interaction with these authorities is growing intense, and as it does, we see the darkness of their heart. The darkness of the cloud that is covering the hearts of these leaders that is thick, that is deep. But in the midst of that darkness, we continue to see Jesus shining the bright light of his truth and his grace as he continues to call people to belief in his person and work. As he continues to tell people the good news of the gospel, that there is assurance and hope that is ours because of him. Today, I want us to look at these verses, verses 22 through 42, and look at three things in particular. First of all, the conflict between Jesus and these authorities. Secondly, how Jesus responds to the conflict. And then lastly, the result that we see that comes as Jesus interacted with them. So first of all, the conflict. In order to understand the conflict better, we need to understand the context. And as John often does in his gospel, he gives us a, a time stamp, a time marker. You can see it in verse 22 where he says that these things are taking place during the Feast of Dedication. You'll remember back chapters 5 through the middle part of chapter 10 take place in and around the, the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths that took place in the fall. But here we're told that time has progressed and no longer is it the fall. This is the Feast of Dedication, which takes place several months later in the winter. This feast was not something that was prescribed in the Old Testament. Rather, it was a it was a feast, it was a celebration that the authorities came up with to remember and to celebrate a specific event in the life of Israel's past. 
167 BC, a foreign pagan ruler invaded and took over Jerusalem, set up a pagan altar in the temple of God and sacrificed pigs on the altar. Over the coming months after that, and even the next couple of years, many of the Jews fought back and revolted. Eventually, they overthrew the foreign ruler and the troops. And under the Jewish leadership of Judas Maccabeus, they recaptured the temple and consecrated it again to God. What happened as a result of that is that the people broke out in a celebration and a feast for eight days And the religious authorities decreed that every year at that same time, there would be an eight day feast. It's also called the Feast of Lights because it was a time when lights were lit and uh, candles were lit. And it was often done in people's homes. And the Jewish people today still celebrate this feast. We just know it by a different name. It's the name of Hanukkah. So it's during this feast of dedication right around December that Jesus, we're told, was walking in the temple. And notice what we're told in verse 23. The Jews gathered around him. Now that's not just an incidental statement that John is telling us. It's actually an important statement, an important phrase that they gathered around him because it tells us the manner in which they were approaching Jesus. The the Greek word for gathered around means to encircle or to surround with hostile intent. For months, Jesus had had interactions with the religious authorities and they were increasing in hostility and conflict. All the way back in chapter 5, they had already decided to kill him. They had tried to do that several times. And now we see things again coming to a boiling point. This last major conflict, confrontation before he's going to be arrested in the spring. And you can see the manner here as they surround Jesus in the temple, as they come at him with hostile intent. And that helps us to understand the question that they ask in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Because we understand the manner in which they come, we understand that this is not a a genuine inquisitive inquiry a request for some clarity. This was an attempt to get Jesus on record in public with a statement that they could use to legally arrest him and execute him. And as Jesus points out in the following verses, they had more than enough information of who Jesus was. They had observed Jesus's works. They knew who Jesus was. That brings us to our first application. What we see here in this passage and other places in John is a graphic picture of the depravity of the human heart. Of the spiritual inability to see and to believe apart from God's work in our lives. It reminds us of what uh, Jesus said back in John chapter 6. That no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It reminds us of what we read in Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But brothers and sisters in Christ, that's not only true of these religious authorities who were seeking to do Jesus harm. It is true of every single one of us as well. Every part of our being has been touched by the fall. 
And we too have hearts that are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And unless the Father would draw us to Jesus, we would never come to him on our own. But that's where the good news shows up. When we understand our spiritual depravity, when we understand our spiritual inability, it leads us to the good news. As we understand the depth of our spiritual depravity, then we see the depth of God's grace. When we understand that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, incapable of responding to God, then we see the wonderful truth that it is by grace that we have been saved. Rick Phillips in his commentary on John says that if we look at these verses carefully, we, we can see this wonderful, as it's often referred to, the golden chain of God's grace or the golden chain of salvation by God's grace. Look, look at verses 27 through 29. Jesus speaking says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Do you see this wonderful display of God's grace at the beginning of verse 29? We read that the Father gives sheep to Jesus. A wonderful picture of our divine election that before the foundation of the world, our Father has known us and loved us and chosen us. The beginning of verse 27, we're told that the sheep hear the voice of Jesus. It's a wonderful picture of our effectual calling of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes to see and our ears to hear the voice of our Savior. In the middle of verse 27, Jesus says, I know my sheep. It's a picture of our justification. Jesus knows us and goes to the cross to die for us and declares his sheep justified. And righteous. The end of verse 27, he says that the sheep follow Jesus, a picture of our sanctification, that the sheep follow the shepherd in loving obedience. And then in verse 28, Jesus gives his sheep eternal life, a picture of our glorification, that we get eternal life that can never be lost. To see our spiritual inability, to see our spiritual depravity enables us to see God's loving and never-ending grace. He, he elects us, He calls us, He justifies us, He sanctifies us, and He glorifies us. This is the conflict that Jesus was having with the religious authorities. But how did Jesus respond to their hostile question? You can see his response in verses 25 and 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And basically what Jesus is saying to them is, I've told you. You don't need me to tell you again who I am. I've told you. I've stated it plainly over and over again. And on top of that, my works, my miracles also bear witness about who I am. Think of all the things that Jesus has said and all of the things that Jesus has done so far, just so far in John's gospel. Think of what Jesus has said. Chapter 3, he told Nicodemus, the son of man had descended from heaven. 
Chapters 3 and 5, he spoke of doing what he saw and heard uh, from the Father. In chapter 5, he, uh, he asserted, <clears throat> excuse me, he asserted that the Father had given him life in himself. He said the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about him. He said he had come in the Father's name. He said that Moses had written about him. In chapter 6, he claimed to be the bread of life. He said that he had come down from heaven to do the will of the Father. He, he claimed to be the bread that had come down from heaven. He said that his words were spirit in life. And then in chapter 7, his teach, he said that his teaching was not his own, but from the Father. He said that he came from heaven and would, would return there where his accusers would not be able to go. Chapters 8 and 9, he called himself the light of the world. In chapter 8, he claimed to be not from this world. He said he was the son of man. And when, accuse, when the accusers lift me up, he said, they will know that I am. He said he had come from God who had sent him. He said that those who keep his word would not taste death. That before Abraham was, I am. In chapter 9, he told the blind man that he had healed, that he is the son of man. And when he said it, the man worshipped him. In chapter 10, he said that the Father had given him authority to lay down his life and to take it up again, and that he is the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and lays down his life for his sheep. That's what Jesus had said about himself. And think about what Jesus had done just in this, uh, up until this point in John's Gospel. In chapter 2, he turned water into wine at a wedding. Chapter 3, he did things that convinced Nicodemus that God was with him. In chapter 4, he promised to give living water. And he also told the Samaritan woman at the well everything that she had ever done. Chapter 5, he healed a man lame for 38 years. Chapter 6, he fed 5,000 people, or 5,000 men, which probably meant closer to 10 to 20,000 people. Also in chapter 6, he, he did things that made the crowds of the people want to make him their king. Chapter 9, he gave sight to a man who was born blind. And then all of the numerous occasions, including in our passage, when he kept the religious authorities from arresting him or killing him. And on top of all of that, he gave people faith to believe in him. The evidence, the evidence is sufficient. It's more than sufficient to know who Jesus is. But it's not just the evidence that's sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient as well. After Jesus made the statement that he did in verse 30, where he said that he and his father are one, the religious authorities picked up stones right there in the temple and they were going to stone him right there and kill him in the temple. How did Jesus respond? Calmly, patiently, powerfully. Continued to address them, continued to engage them. You can see that in verses 32 to 38. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. So the religious authorities are charging Jesus with blasphemy because he said he is the Son of God. Called himself God himself. But as you, if you're like me, as you read Jesus' argument here, 
It's not exactly clear what he was saying. But what is Jesus getting at here? What's the flow of his argument and response to this accusation of blasphemy? Well, it'll probably help to understand that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. It was a psalm that was written to, a, to address unjust judges in Israel. And in Psalm 82, God speaking calls the judges of Israel little g gods. And what he was saying was that they were God's representatives to the people, that they ruled with God's authority in such a way that he could call them little g gods. So here's the flow of what Jesus' response was to this charge of blasphemy. He's saying this, in the Old Testament... The Bible uses the small g gods for certain men in a very qualified way. And we know that Scripture can't be broken. We, we know that Scripture's not wrong. We know that we can't just disregard Scripture when it's not convenient for us. So how could it possibly be wrong, Jesus is saying, for me to call myself the Son of God, and especially so because I am perfectly worthy of that title? The Father has consecrated me, the Father has set me apart, and He sent me into the world on His mission. So your charge of blasphemy has no merit. I want you also to appreciate the irony here. These religious authorities claimed that Jesus was making Himself God. But in reality, Jesus is God. And He was made man to come into this world and to live a life of perfect love and obedience, and then to offer his life as the perfect God-man on the cross. And that leads us to our second application. Jesus is here giving us, in, these, in his flow of his argument, he's giving us a clear picture of the authority of God's word. In verse 35, he says that the scriptures, the, the word of God, cannot be broken. That means a couple things for us. The Word of God can't be broken means that the Word of God can't be wrong. And so that means that we must believe what the Bible says. Not just when it says things that we like or that we agree with. Not just when it says things that make our lives easier. Not just when it's convenient for us. We must believe what the Word of God says in everything that it says. And when we find our beliefs in conflict with what the Word of God says, then it is our beliefs that must change. We can't just disregard the Word of God like what the religious authorities were doing. That leads us to another thing that the Scripture cannot be broken means for us. Not only is it the Word of God authoritative, and therefore it must be believed, but it also must be obeyed. Rick Phillips in his commentary says that the Bible is not made relevant by its usefulness to our worldly lifestyles. Rather, the Bible is relevant in and of itself because it is the Word of God. Or we could put it this way, the Bible is to be obeyed not just when it is useful to us, but must be obeyed at all times because it is the very Word of God. We don't get to pick and choose which parts of God's Word we obey. Over the course of our lives, we must become more and more conformed to the, to the Word of God. It is the Holy Spirit that works in us to do that, but the Lord uses means. 
And one of the means is His Word itself. How can we become more and more conformed to God's Word if we're not reading God's Word? If we're not spending time meditating on God's Word? Are you? Are you finding time to be in the Word of God? Finding ways that your life needs to be more conformed to it. This is one of the means that God gives us by which He conforms us to His Word. Another means that the Holy Spirit can use to help us to be more and more conformed to the Word is when we put up barriers to our sin. Think about, think about all of the things that tempt you the most. Think of the things that are the easiest things for you to give in to. What barriers have you put up in your life to make it more difficult to give in to those temptations? If you're tempted to look at things on the internet that you shouldn't be looking at, what, what barriers have you put up? What software that will make it more difficult for you to get to those sites are you using? If you're somebody that struggles with anxiety and worry, or, or you struggle with envy or greed, what barriers are you putting up so that in that very moment it will be more difficult to give in? Are you writing down scripture verses that pertain to worry or that pertain to greed or envy and, and then calling those things to mind in the midst of your temptation? The Lord can use that as a barrier by which He gives you the strength to say no to your sin. This is the response that Jesus had to the religious authorities. What was the result What's the result of this final intense interaction between these religious leaders and Jesus? Well, one of the results is unbelief. After Jesus answered their first question in verse 31, they picked up stones to stone him. And then in verse 33, they reiterated that they were going to stone him. And then in verse 39, after Jesus refuted their claim of blasphemy, they tried to arrest him in order to kill him. All the way to the end, despite all of the evidence, despite everything that Jesus said and Jesus did, despite the evidence of the Old Testament scriptures themselves, they persisted in their unbelief. Even after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and was ascended back into heaven, they, they threatened and they persecuted and they arrested and they tortured and they killed Jesus' disciples. That's one of the responses when people come in contact with Jesus, unbelief. But not everybody responded that way. We see that in verses 40 to 42. Jesus went away again across the Jordan, Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many, many believed in him there. Jesus left the temple, he left Jerusalem, he left the area, and we're told that many people followed him and many people believed in Jesus. It's always going to be true. It's always been true since Jesus walked this earth. It will be true until Jesus returns. The result of coming into contact with Jesus is that some believe and some don't. And that leads us to our final application. 
An application first for those who are here, those who might be online today, who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The evidence of who Jesus is, is entirely sufficient. From all that Jesus has said about himself and all that Jesus did in his works and his miracles and all of the entirety of scripture, it is clear who Jesus is. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity and he came into this world as one of us, fully God and fully man. And when he got here, he reminded us what God's standard is for getting eternal life. We read it earlier in the service. It's nothing less than perfection. The problem is, is that because of the fall of Adam and Eve, now we are all spiritually incapable of living up to the standard of perfection. So we are guilty before God of breaking his standard. And as a result, we are deserving of eternal punishment. But the good news is that by believing in Jesus, all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame is put on him and he pays for it in full. And we get his righteous perfection credited to our accounts, declared just and righteous in God's sight. So if you've not put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus, let today be that day. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What about for believers? Well, two things. First of all, remember what Jesus said in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And what do they do? They follow me. Believers, Christians, Jesus' sheep, they hear his voice. They follow him. You know, anytime a sheep would wander away from its shepherd... Bad things would happen. Could be devoured by an animal. Could fall into a hole. Could fail to find a water source. But when they stayed with the shepherd, they were cared for and nurtured, protected. We are God's sheep. And when we wander away from our shepherd, bad things happen. What are the areas in your life where you are failing to hear the voice of your shepherd, where you're failing to follow him. A second thing and last thing for believers, there is here an incredible hope and assurance for those who are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps the most important words in this entire passage are in verses 28 and 29. Jesus speaking says, I give them the sheep eternal life, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father am one. If you are in Christ Jesus, then Jesus has a hold on you. He holds you in his hands with hands that will never stop holding you. There is no one, he says, there is no thing that can snatch you out of Jesus's hands. And on top of that, he goes on in verse 29 to say that the father has a hold of you as well. It's this picture of Jesus holding you in his hands and the father overlaying his hand on top. 
There is no one greater than the Father, he says. Jesus and the Father are one. There's no one. There's no thing stronger than the Father and the Son's grip on you. It's what we sang earlier in the service, isn't it? What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. How inclusive is no one when Jesus says that he has you gripped in his hand and no one can snatch you away. And when the father has you in his hand and no one can take you away. How inclusive is that? It means no one. Nothing. Not time. Not the powers and authorities of this world. Not spiritual powers. Not yourselves. Not sin and not even death can take you from the hand of your Savior. And isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul told us in Romans chapter 8? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing in all creation. And if you are in Christ Jesus, that's how certain and secure you are. Christian, believe it. It is God's word that says it. And in those moments when you feel a lack of the assurance of God's love and acceptance over you, come to the word of God and hear it again and again and again. There is no one, there is nothing in all of creation that can snatch you from the hands of your Savior. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps it's easier for us as we sit here together with your people, with the word of God in our laps. Perhaps it's easier for us to believe these words are true, that indeed we do have assurance, an assurance that is certain. But we know, Father, that as life comes at us in this coming week, there are going to be moments when we doubt, when we waver, when it's hard to believe in the assurance that is ours. In those moments, Father, would you bring us back to the, to the word of God through the work of your spirit, that you would feed us from your word and that you would strengthen our hope, our assurance, and that in the midst of that, we would hear our Savior's voice and we would delight in following him. 
This we ask in his name. Amen.